Hello and welcome to the show and an episode where, after a couple of weeks pretending to get on with salespeople, we're back amongst our own and talking about the future of product management recruitment. Speaking of product management recruitment, this episode is sponsored by me. I'm currently looking into consulting and would love to help you with any of your product management, product leadership or product team problems. You can check out OneNightConsulting.com if you want to find out more or book a no-commitment intro call. And make sure you share with your friends, colleagues and even your enemies. That's OneNightConsulting.com and that's night with a K. But anyway, enough about me. If you want to find out more about whether the future of recruitment is in the metaverse, get those VR goggles, strap them on your head and come with us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Sean Smith-Taylor. Sean's a self-described sports-obsessed product geek and barbecue enthusiast, which leaves open the exciting possibility of me resurrecting my product manager barbecue question. You can press the red button for that premium content. Sean once worked doing data entry for a bank and was so horrified at the inefficient processes and multiple stakeholders, he decided to go all in with AI and even, God forbid, the metaverse. He's now here to save us from the horrors of recruitment with my product path, which I'm sure you can find their office on a second life island near you. Hi, Sean. How are you tonight? I'm really good, and thanks for having me. No problem. It's good to have you here. But before we get too chummy, I want to find out a bit about yourself. So you are the co-founder of My Product Path. What problem does My Product Path solve for me specifically? Quite a few. Oh, good. So I think if you're, if you're there, yeah. So we'll start, with, we'll start with a couple first. So My Product Path specializes in helping both the candidates and then also companies, right? So as a candidate, we've got a really slick user interface that the candidate can go from one end of the recruitment process, i.e. applying for a role, to going all the way through to signing the contract yep. and being onboarded with that institution. For a company, it's a little bit different. So we provide a SaaS interface to the company. They can view, they can track, they can progress their applications, and they can also combine it with sourcing. So My Product Path is a technology company, but it's also a recruitment services company. So we can find the talent for you. And then we can provide you with technology that allows you to go through the process and onboard them in a way that doesn't make the candidate want to, you know, do very bad things to themselves because it <laughs> takes far too long and is horrible. Yeah. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's what we do. So that's interesting, the services product mix there. So what would you say the percentage balance there is between the two things? Like, are you very heavy on the services or is a lot of it self-serve and that services is kind of a bit of a premium offering? Um, I think it's evolving. So we've got three strategic customers that are very much on the service element. And then we've got a lot of, you know, uh, well, not a lot, but we're now increasing the number of plug and play customers. So we're onboarding about one a month in terms of plug and play because when he started 12 months ago, and we've got three very strategic customers that are massive yep. that require the, uh, the more premium service. Oh, the old white gloves on. Exactly. But why should people use my product path? and not say one of the other ways that they can go and get a job, like, for example, LinkedIn or Otto or all these other companies that are out there that can probably, in some ways, legitimately and in some ways, non-legitimately claim to do much the same stuff that you just said. Yeah, well, I think there's depends on the motivations, of course. But I think, you know, the reason that my product fact was started was that I, as a somebody that hired people, was just really lost with what I had at my disposal to do it, right? Because you either need an internal function that 
let's be honest, the internal HR teams, whilst we love them dearly, are generally oh, of function that don't really add, you know, a huge amount of value on top of carrying out instructions or what you tell them to do. Well, they're the ones that I worked with anyway. Yeah. I think so you've got that element which we can help with. I think the other area is also around technology. So the what we saw a gap in the market was that there was nobody specializing in product management. So my product path, the name gives it away, right? So we provide a user interface for candidates and customers to be onboarded through a product-centric system. So all of the cultural side of the platform, all of the assessment side of the platform is based on specialist product management knowledge of somebody that has actually gone through the process themselves, both from a candidate and a hiring perspective. With LinkedIn, you don't get that. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, that's probably one of the first differences. But I think the, the other difference is we do an end-to-end journey. Right. So, you know, as a candidate, you can have both the human and the non-human touch of, you know, product specialists. From a company perspective, you have the same. If you go to an Indeed or a LinkedIn or a Storm, you're going to have somebody that is effectively a salesperson that's read a couple of books, right? And might know a couple of buzzwords that (laughs) might try and woo you. But if you're any good at product, you'll see through it straight away. And you've still got a pretty manual system where you're reviewing PDFs, emails, and it's not very intuitive or it's not very, you know, I wouldn't want to use it. The reason we started my product path is I got really angry with the recruiters I was using. I bin them all and I took a punt actually on a partnership with Ash, who's my co-founder. And the way he approached me was to do a podcast, right? Oh, Which I thought was quite go. novel. He wanted to do a podcast. Now, he's a complete... I love him dearly. He's a complete idiot when it comes to technology. So we, we <laughs> smashed this podcast. Yours is brilliant, right? But this, is, this was epic. And the guy forgot to record it properly. So we had literally like 20 minutes of gold, which there was no context for. So it's nearly as bad as me forgetting my head- headphones today, right? But it's not quite as bad. So, so sorry, long-winded answer to what you asked. No, that makes a lot of sense. And just for full disclosure, there's been at least two podcast episodes that I've released out of the 140-odd that I've done so far that I've had to completely re-record my half of the conversation because it came out either, well, actually not, there's no either. It was basically just unusable from like the wrong microphone. And I'm never going to say which ones they are. And hopefully people will listen to them all and try to guess, but I completely feel your pain. I've also been interviewed on the radio before and not had the microphone turned on as well. So it's, there's got to be a solution to that, right? There's got to be some kind of product out there that can help us with this sort of thing. Well, if there's not, maybe that's the a joint venture, right, for some time in future. There you go. You saw it here first. Dragon's Den slash Shark Tank next. <laughs> but you've touched on it already around being around product people and being a specialist for that area and, and that industry or that, I guess, that function. Is it just product people or do you cover a wider selection like you know, developers and designers and maybe other people in and around product management and around product companies? Or do you really niche down on the product people themselves, the product managers? Yeah, so at the moment, it is just my product path. We have done roles at the side of it. So we've done delivery managers, we've done software engineers. Um, we've recently actually spun out a, a mortgage broker, which is, this is completely different, right? But with mortgage broker side, which is called My Mortgage Path, right? Because it's oh, there you go. it makes sense. And the reason for that is the product market fit was absolutely outrageous. Like the sign-up process was, you know, it was on bulk. People were recruiting like 40, 50 at a time. And it was, like, it was horrible. It was so painful. It was outrageous. So, We've, we've actually got decent market share within that market already. 
And what it's leading us to do now is we'll be rebranding in the next couple of months to my career path, which will have basically product verticals beneath them, which will be product, it will be mortgages, it will be software, et cetera, et cetera, right? And if anybody has any need for a specific product vertical, then drop us a note and we can, we can have a thought about fast tracking it. But I think that's kind of the ethos, but underneath all of it is the technology, right? So we have an ATS system yeah, and we have a product pipeline system. And those two can be used, you know, they've been, they've been made by people that understand product for a start, but they can actually be used on any of the verticals. But we started with product because it's what we knew very, very well. And it's also an area that is fundamentally understaffed. Yeah, that makes sense. But I was going to ask, you know, you're building something for product people. And of course, I'm one of those and I know how product people think and or at least I think I do. I'm sure you do or think you do too. But I guess the question is, when you're building stuff for product people, don't they know all the secrets that they can use to basically get you to build all their feature requests ASAP? Or are you quite good at just fending those off? I think there's two things. So I think the user feedback is amazing. So as we were going through the betas, we had a group of 15 people that we were testing it with. And that's the great thing about product people is they're always going to give you your opinion, right? And whether you <laughs> take that opinion or you don't, you're going to get it. Well, from, from good people anyway. Yeah. But what we have done in terms of the second thing you said is, sure, you know, some of the strategic customers, we won't fork the product. I'm never, ever going to do that because I've felt the pain historically when that's happened. But we do develop everything on a module microservice level. So we might develop, and we are developing actually, different modules that may only be used by one or two strategic customers, but that's fine because the return on investment's okay. But it is plug and play. So again, I think, the reality of the situation is, you know, there is no recruitment company in the world today that offers the ability to source, find quality candidates, and then put them through a piece of technology that's automated and actually you want to use. So from that perspective, the plug and play is okay. I think as we scale, as we go into different sectors, it's going to be interesting how the technology and the architecture sits. We've got a really good uh, development team at the moment, but they're going to have their work, their hands full over probably the next two to five years. Well, speaking of hands full, I also noticed there's a mentoring section on the website and was going to ask you about scope creep because that feels like another thing that you've got going on, which maybe isn't part of your core mission, although obviously really valuable and something that I massively support. So is that like a separate part of the platform or just a service offering or like how does that work? So at the moment, that's off system. So it's not part for your, for that exact point of what you said. The technology scope creep, I, I get excited by things very, very quickly, right? So I have to stop myself trying to build different components all the time. Yeah. Ultimately, though, when we've got the, when we've got the user level, what I think is a critical mass, then actually making it into a marketplace that has mentorship, has training. What I really like the, we're doing again this manually today, but if somebody doesn't get uh, the, the PM role, for example, that they're going for, then again, you know, positioning them to understand why. You know, the communication element isn't great from recruitment companies, right? You very rarely, they ghost you, right, when you don't actually get a role. So actually providing a mechanism that actually will inform them, you know, how can they benchmark to that role in future and provide actually a, a marketplace that does that is really important to me. And that will be an area of focus going forward. And that will include the mentoring side. But at the moment, it's off system because we need to take advantage of the use case we currently have and if we we don't have unlimited resources so we can't go for that at the moment no that makes a lot of sense but again very interested in that as a concept so obviously keep an eye out on that but i don't think it's controversial to say and it's something that i've chatted about on this podcast 
with a few different guests in the past that product job specs can be a real car crash. Like they can be confusing. They can be almost like a laundry list of just random capabilities or random tasks that they expect these people to do. Half the time, they look like they're just stuck together from a bunch of different job specs and kind of cobbled together at the last minute. Now, I'm assuming that the job specs that come into your system, some of them are like that because they're being submitted by the same companies, right? So is that something that you feel that you can help us fix? Or is that just a fact of life and we're just always going to have to put up with it? I think it's. I think there's two parts to that. So strategic customers at the moment, we are effectively doing uh, some of their job specs for them because yep. they. <laughs> I think these companies are great, right? But that some of them, to your point, are absolutely terrible and actually confuse applicants, and you actually get the wrong applicants going for the roles. So, yeah, I think using our experience, using the feedback from other customers, we can add a huge amount of value in terms of coaching our key customers on what they need to do to change their job specs. 50% of our customers at the moment will come to us for advice. We're redoing a lot of them. I think for plug and play, it's going to be more difficult as we scale. So I think what we are looking at at the moment is we have the ability today and customers do, I add a job spec onto our system. And that's then obviously flicked out in terms of the advert into into the wider echelons of the, the recruitment space. But in future, Having a structure that we know that works that focuses on, you know, what do the company, what does the company actually do? Plus, what's its cultural values? I think that's often massively overlooked, and you get the wrong people. Yeah, uh, you might get somebody that's capable, but they will be a bad apple. For example, we've seen that so so. And actually, that's something interesting. We we really really double down on a cultural assessment of any any candidate. So we actually, as part of our commercials, we offer a twelve month effectively money-back guarantee. We call it something different in the sales collateral. I can't remember what we call it. But actually, usually that's like 90 days tops. But we're so confident from a cultural perspective, we'll get that right and competence is easy. So from that perspective, that's something we we can do. And then also, well, a lot of our job specs are outcome-based rather than you will deliver X, um, which is effectively, yeah. I mean, we can go on to the PO versus PM discussion, but that's probably a different topic. So I think two things. A, we do it, and it's an off-system process today. But we, yeah, about 50% of our customers that we, for free, effectively help with because they'll get it's easy. We, our job's easier, right, to source the candidate if it's done correctly. But we need to actually put that into the system to allow only a certain format to be entered with specific values because that will make the plug-and-play more scalable in future. No, that's fair enough. But what about the other way around then? Of course, then you've also got the CVs coming through as well. Now, I've hired product managers before and continue to do so to this day. And of course, you get a bunch of CVs through. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. What are some of the ways that you can help fix the bad? Like, Do you offer the similar sorts of services then to try and help spruce up people's CVs? Or do they need to go to a CV doctor first and then submit whatever they come back with to you? Well, fortunately, I've been to many CV doctors in my time. <laughs> I've had some absolute horrors of CVs over the last 20 years. So what we do two things. So if we're actively going to put anybody forward as a, to, for a role, then their CV has to be up to a specific standard. We've got eight different, it's like a checklist, right? You know, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Um, and maybe that's something we can share afterwards because it would be useful for most people, I think. Yep. So there's that for the shortlisted candidates. 
For the ones that are just on the database and they, who don't get shortlisted, then we were talking about communication earlier. Um, this is something we need to step up, quite frankly, and we need to make sure everybody has visibility to it. So we'll be at some point sending a link around that allows everybody to, to kind of improve the quality of their CV. But what are some of the big mistakes that you've seen or that you're aware of that people do make on their CVs? Like, obviously, you've got the obvious ones like, you know, 25 page long CVs or things that are just a big wall of text or got too many graphics all over them so you can barely read them. But like, are there any kind of more content-based mistakes that you think are really worth calling out and might help people to actually get hired quicker? Or is it so variable that you couldn't possibly comment? I think, no, I can definitely comment, but I think it is hugely variable. So you get lots of people that will focus on, you know, these are my key achievements. And they just list like 10 to 20 key achievements at the start. Of, it takes up the first page and you're like, okay, well done. But you know, who did you do that for? What was the problem that you actually fixed? And I don't think a lot of CVs are based on outcomes. We talk about outcomes a lot in product, right? Yeah. It's very common. I don't think CVs are really written in that way. And I think a really simple, we had one last week that was, it looked as if it had been done on a typewriter. So we spoke to this candidate and said, you know, hey, can you just tell us what, why you did this from a formatting perspective? And he just said, oh, I thought it looked cool. So I think there's like so many things that, yeah, from a presentational perspective, you know, the images, I've seen one that had like the person's photo, but in four different places on the same page. <laughs> it's just like, it's nonsense. So I think there's, there's some key items, but I think making it more outcome-based, definitely, and just sticking to the basics, you know, what is a good introduction to you as a product person, some very high-level key skills, and then go through your actual credentials. Who have you worked for? What have you delivered? What problem have you solved? I think that's really the key thing, um, and make it two pages max. Yeah, I was going to say about maximum length, but you just beat me to it. So two pages max. What would you do if you found one with three? Would you reject it instantly, or I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that much of an ogre. So <laughs> three might be all right. If you get into four and five, you're out because nobody reads it. Well, I don't anyway. Like if I get a CV that's four or five pages, I won't read it. You're not going to do. It. No, that's fair enough. And you know, us poor recruiting managers have got our own time to think about as well. But this then leads nicely into another topic around the dreaded ATS systems that you spoke about as well, that you have one yourself. And it's something that you get a lot of negative stories about, certainly on social media around like, oh, I don't know, the ATS has automatically kicked me out and it's biased against me and it didn't even look at my CV and everything's just all being hired by AI now and nothing's fair and I didn't get the job because of X, Y. Like, obviously, that isn't impossible. But do you think that your ATS or ATSs in general get kind of unfair heat around some of this? Or do you think that it's a fair paranoia to have? I think it's, it is fair. And I think it's the use of technology. So everybody talks about AI, but you know, from an ML perspective, specifically ATSs aren't using unsupervised machine learning. Um, and they're not. If anybody says they are, they're lying. Or if they, if they, are, if they do, then show me, right? Contact me afterwards <laughs> and prove to me you're using unsupervised because you're not. So, and let's park unsupervised for a second. I think one of the main problems is with semi-supervised, which is super, super important. I think there's lots of value to it. You are still reliant on labels. Yep. And labels need to be programmed by people that actually understand what they're doing. So having a product-led recruitment agency with an ATS is quite helpful. I think, you know, 
from our perspective, that's what we will be investing a lot of time in. I think the unsupervised part is something I'm really interested in. You know, I've had two years of experience at an AI company recently, and it really opened my eyes. You know, unsupervised is the absolute magic. But, <laughs> you know, going back to, I mean, that takes away the human bias, right, straight away, because it's unsupervised, as long as, again, the red flags are programmed correctly up front. But actually, you won't remove the human bias. Well, not sorry, not human bias. You won't remove the human touch from the process because at some point in the candidate journey, they're going to, they might want to speak to a human, right? So you need to have the ability to contact your recruiter, you know, whoever it is, your mentor as you go through the platform. And also the same, you know, from a customer perspective, we've got a lot of generation X and Zs basically that use it from a customer perspective. And they don't want to talk to me and the team. They've got no interest, right? <laughs> Give them a slick user interface. They'll make their decisions and high five. Now, there might be a stage where actually at the end, they're like, actually, I'm not really sure about this. Let me pick up the phone to Sean or let me pick up the phone to Ash. And as long as you're giving them the ability to do that, you're okay. But yeah, I think human bias can be removed from the process really easily. I think one of the key areas that is really not looked at a lot is subjectivity of the people using the ATS. And I think that's, so when it's not the ATS has kicked it out, it's whoever's pulling the strings underneath is kicking it out. So one thing we we actually put into our platform really quickly was the ability for the for the candidate to mask their personal identity information. Yep. So then you are basing it on skills rather than, you know, background or anything like that. So I think that's something really, really important. Our customers really like that as well. Um, now, of course, you need to know the identity at some point when you go into an, as in like sending out a contract, but it shouldn't make any difference to you doing a review of the competency of the person in the first place. Yeah, I'm a big fan of anonymized or redacted CVs to some extent. I mean, again, you're right. There's going to be a point where you're going to be speaking to that person and you're going to be able to get to see a lot about at least their physical and cultural characteristics, I guess, although obviously there could still be other stuff that you didn't get from like background. But I think ultimately, if we accept that there's a level of bias within everyone, which of course there is, then it's not an attack on the recruiting manager, the hiring manager to say, well, we want to remove bias from the equation because everyone has biases. And I think it's absolutely fair to say that we should do what we can to minimize that. But I guess on the flip side with AI, there's always a fuzziness. You know, I've worked in machine learning AI companies in the past and know full well that there's a margin of error in this stuff. Now, if there's a margin of error when you're, I don't know, calculating trends from social media that can help with brand campaigns for companies, like that's one thing. But if there's a margin of error in an ATS in either supervised or unsupervised learning techniques and, and the models that those techniques kick out, there's a real human cost there, right? The, these people aren't going to get jobs potentially because of a misclassification. Do you think there's things that we can do to try to avoid that? Or is it always going to be almost like a breakage on the general process? I think look at the alternative, right? So with ATS systems, they onboard and process millions of candidates collectively as a market on a daily basis. So if you remove the ATS and you bring back what was happening 20 years ago, you have thousands of humans that are far more fallible than technology. Now, the technology has to be written and 
of course, you need some very clever data scientists uh, that understand what the hell they're doing. But actually, it's just a lot more accurate. But I think that I think the whole point goes away from you know ATSs should not be completely plug and play with no human interaction. I think the human human interaction in the recruitment space is actually sometimes overlooked. So whilst I am a massive advocate of automating processes that can be 100%, that's why I've done my whole career, we need to be careful, but it's a lot more effective than the alternative that we could have. And I think that's what people need to think about. So is it completely 100% accurate? Nothing is. No, and I guess the thing with People, as you say, like people don't need any excuse to be biased themselves. We talked about that. Like some people are biased, some people are downright prejudiced, right? So I guess controlling for that is great. Although if we're talking about supervised learning, then of course this labeling is being done by people. You know, you touched on that before. And it's not uncommon to see stories in the news around, hey, you know, Google's algorithms are flagging people with dark skin as monkeys and stuff like that and obviously then that all blows up and they try and take some of that stuff away but do you feel that there's this other lurking problem that basically we're reinforcing some of the biases of the people because the same biased people are labeling the data which then is used to generate the models i think you've got to be very very careful who you pick as part of the team to to do labeling i think you know, when you're talking about Google, for example, and the scale that Google are at, you know, of course, there's going to be some significant challenges at some point. And the example you brought up earlier is horrendous, right? And yeah. Unfortunately, that happened. And unfortunately, it will happen again in a different way sometime in the future. I think from a My Product Path perspective, at the moment, we're not at the scale of Google, right? I have very ambitious hopes, of course, <laughs> but we're not at the moment. So actually, it's a lot easier for us to control. And it's a lot easier for us to learn. I'm a very big advocate of mining data and actually understanding trends and analytics. So, yeah, I mean, look, yeah, it is a lot more effective to use technology than not use technology. That's just a fact we all accept. And as product people, we do that on a daily basis. Yep. Will using my product paths ATS system 100% remove human bias? No. Will it actually increase the effectiveness of your recruitment process and remove the majority of human bias? Yes. Oh, a bold claim. I'm looking forward to the white paper in due course. But speaking of technology and stuff that may or may not work, you're into all things metaverse now. Obviously, times have moved on, but when I think about recruitment in the metaverse, I'm thinking of all those cringeworthy second life gold rushes where all of the companies were trying to get on there and set up virtual presences and then Two months later, it seemed like they'd all collapsed again and, and slunk off with their tails between their legs. But I mean, you know, I mean, this, this, we're not going to be able to cover the entire metaverse in this chat. But from a recruitment perspective, what do you think the biggest benefits to the metaverse are like? And, you know, obviously either augmented reality or into full on VR, like what can it bring to recruitment? So I think we, we have to, we have to accept. Have you seen Ready Player One, the film? Yes. Okay, there we go. So I hope everybody that's listening to this has, if not, go and watch it. It's awesome. Um, but Ready Player One, you know, I think we have to accept as a society, there are individuals even today that want to live in that world, right? And actually going forward, there's going to be an increasing number and the pandemic has not helped that. Or actually has helped, depending on which side of the fence you sit on. So it is what it is, right? So I think from a recruitment perspective, there are individuals that do not want to engage in face-to-face -face interviews. They have no interest. 
Um, they don't even want to use a, a tool like Zoom, for example. Again, they have no interest. They want to do everything within the metaverse itself because that's where they can do other things that they enjoy. I think the technology itself, motion tracking, has to be really advanced, to be honest, because I think one of the key areas that I actually legitimately feel the metaverse will help with is assessments. So imagine assessment days, right? So if you do an assessment day, and this really happens very, this happens a lot in the mortgage world. So they will take, let's say, I don't know, 50 brokers, for example, and they'll do an assessment day and they'll hire 20. That's kind of how it works. Now, you have to do that face-to-face at the moment because you could do a Zoom or a Teams meeting or you could use whatever that party thing was that everybody was like jumping on. What was it called? House party, that's it. And so you could kind of use something like that, but it's not going to work. So I actually think if motion tracking actually improves, then you will be able to engage in a way from an assessment perspective, read people's body language that you can't do effectively today. With, I mean, I can see you, right? Great. If there was another 10 windows and we're having to do team exercise, this doesn't work as a channel. So I think that would help. I think, you know, there's a lot of data in the metaverse now. I, I'm sure people are looking at that data, but I do think from a data science perspective, there will be a lot of, there'll be a lot of enhancements or advancements, sorry, over the next five years in terms of how data is used. Uh, we were talking about modeling before and what data, you know, the metaverse has a ridiculous amount of data and it's very, very accessible, which it, that makes it very different from, from other channels. So I think those two are good areas. We've seen a lot of noise around NFTs. Oh, yeesh. you know, that they made a lot of noise, right? What a year, 18 months ago, people, I, I'm, I, I swear this story is true. Somebody, Snoop Dogg, bought a property in the metaverse. And this is not NFT related, actually. But then somebody paid like 1.6 million for the plot of land next to Snoop Dogg. 1.6 million real money. Like the world has gone mad. So yeah, sorry, motion tracking, data science, I think are two areas that need to be improved. But assessment days, things like that, I think would be perfect. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think obviously, let's leave aside the ridiculous prices that people are paying for tokens representing imaginary assets, because that really does start to sound a bit like Second Life again. I don't know if you were particularly big on Second Life back in the day, but I remember walking around for a while, even played a gig on it once. And it was frankly ridiculous now obviously technology has moved on not that you'd know from looking at mark zuckerberg's avatar but it's still just a really interesting thing about like like virtual ownership and all the things that you can do around that but i guess back to the recruitment use case it feels like whilst i completely agree there are going to be some people out there that don't want to go to an office don't want to interact with people in that way they do want to use these new technologies and the new capabilities that are out there that the hiring managers and the companies hiring them, like we're already seeing a blowback against remote working or hybrid working to some extent. Like, whilst the candidates may be ready for this, do we feel that the hiring side is ready for this? I think it, it's going to take time to evolve. I think it depends who the hiring manager is, right? There will be hiring managers yep. that are more comfortable in that world. So if it's those, then yeah, sure. But I think you mentioned the avatar of Zuckerberg, right? I think we need to go back to him. So, you know, he started Facebook based on hearing a really good idea by the Winklevosses, right? And, and changed it slightly, but he knew it would be popular, right? Because yep. they'd made it super um, exclusive, Harvard, whatever it's called, I can't remember. And then he decided, no, let's open it up to absolutely everybody. Um, and of course, there was a good product market fit. It was always going to be super popular. 
Yeah. But what, it, what I feel he's doing, and this is my personal opinion, right? What I feel he's doing with the metaverse is he's creating his own fantasy land. He's been very public over, he doesn't really enjoy interaction with other people, right? He would happily, and he's, he's hired like 10,000 people to build this thing. So I, I think it's going to happen. Yeah. There's going to be people that use it. And it's absolutely cool, right? If a candidate or a hiring manager feels more comfortable doing their part of whatever the process is in that world. I have no problem with that at all. Will it become commonplace in the next five years? Absolutely no chance. In 20 years time, could it actually be a real realistic channel? I think the answer is yes. But I also really think it depends on Zuckerberg himself. You know, how many users does Facebook or Meta or whatever the hell they're calling themselves now have with that and Instagram? And I think they own WhatsApp, right? So yeah. if you think of all of those together, then if he wants to push it hard, he could increase the user base very, very quickly. But I think adoption across any channel to any large degree is, I personally think it's a couple of decades off, but who knows? Oh, well, we'll be uh, still fresh-faced enough to participate, I'm sure. But just to clarify, are we expecting your platform to offer any kind of virtual reality job interviews anytime soon? It's not on the near-term roadmap. Oh, well, I'll uh, see if I can sign up and then get on your feature list. And where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about recruitment, maybe try and get a job, tap you up about the metaverse, or maybe try and get some old war stories from your time in banking? Well, usually I can be found around a barbecue. (laughs) So (laughs) follow the smoke. Other than that, go to myproductpath.com. There is lots of resources there. There's the ability to sign up as a candidate and a customer, and there's a contact form to get in touch. Other than that, we've got some wonderful things happening on Instagram, not as wonderful as yours. <laughs> but we, have, we are aiming towards such high echelons of uh, <laughs> engagement. But yeah, I, I'd be interested to get feedback anyway. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'll link that all into the show notes and hopefully get some feedback and maybe even some prototype avatars heading in your direction well that's been a fantastic chat so obviously really grateful you spent some time talk a bit about your company and some general issues around recruitment and hiring hopefully we can stay in touch but yeah as for now thanks for taking the time thank you very much as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.